turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Been working our way through the ninth chapter of Matthew, and uh, we probably won't get through this whole outline this morning. We'll probably just do one side of it, so lest your heart be troubled. Last week, we stopped basically at verse 33 of the ninth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, and um, it's right after Jesus healed his last, uh, in this triplet of of, uh, miracles, he healed and cast out the demon and healed a deaf and uh, mute person, man. And um, we want to look this morning at the response of the people here. Uh, But before we do that, I just want to read uh, for us um, our text for this morning. And we can just um, uh, begin in verse 33, or verse uh, 32. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus went out to all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. One thing that we can conclude from Scripture is that whenever we saw people come into contact with Christ, there was always a response. You could never just come into contact with Christ and have no response whatsoever. And this morning, we want to look at the response of the people to these, these miracles that Christ has been doing. Uh, we're going to look at the, the marveling multitude, first of all, and the people that were just kind of enthralled with everything he was doing, and then also the rejection from the religious folks of Jesus' day, how they rejected him. But before we actually jump into all that, I just want us to understand that when Christ came, even from the very beginning, it was prophesied of him, even when he was yet 40 days old, that he would be a line of demarcation in human history. That there would be a division that Christ would cause in mankind as we know it. And we we see in Luke chapter 2 that when Jesus was a baby, they had to go to the, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple and made an offering of purification after giving birth to a child. And they were in the temple and they met a very interesting gentleman by the name of Simeon. And he had been waiting a long time for his chance to see the Messiah in person. And this was his chance. And in in verse uh, 30 and 34... In Luke chapter 2, you read the account. And when he saw Jesus, here's what he said. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Then Simeon blessed him and said to his uh, Mary, his mother, and listen to what he said. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign which will be, broke, will be spoken against See, from the very beginning, even when Jesus was a little baby, it was foretold of him that he would be a dividing factory, a dividing factor in mankind. And Simeon basically stated that he would be that dividing line. He would determine the ultimate destiny of every individual who was ever born. Some will reject him and fall. Some will receive him and rise again. And it's always been that way in God's economy. 
As we read this morning in Psalm 1, there are those who are planted like a tree by a river. And what happens? They bring forth fruit, the Bible says. But it also says that there are those who are like chaff and are blown away in the heat of the day and the wind. See, there are the godly and the ungodly. That's the way it's always been. There are the righteous and the unrighteous. One pastor said, there's only two kinds of people in the world, the saints and the ain'ts. That's it. Only two kinds. Well, in Luke 1, even Mary spoke in general terms about the role of this child that she gave birth to. In Luke 1, verse 50, here's what Mary said. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted the lowly and he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. See, Mary knew that it was characteristic of God to receive some and to refuse others. That's just the way God is. To bless some and to curse others. To gather some and to scatter others. To pull down the exalted, to lift up the humble. To fill the hungry and to send away those who are full. In other words, there's always going to be a dividing line between those God blesses and those God curses. It's always going to be there. Now, there's some theologians today that believe in a lot of different things that believe that God's love covers everybody and everybody's going to heaven and we're all going to be there one day together, one big happy family. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there will be some who are in heaven, there will be some who are in hell. And that was prophesied. That dividing line was prophesied. But Christ also proclaimed it himself. He said in Luke 6, verse 20, it says he lifted up his eyes toward the disciples. He says, bless, and this is sound familiar out of Matthew too. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake it's important to remember that little phrase there for the son of man's sake okay not for your own sake but for the son of man's sake verse 23 rejoice in that day and leap for joy for indeed your reward is great in heaven for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets but woe to you who are rich for you who have you have received your consolation woe to you who are full For you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did the fathers to to the false prophets. See, they're the blessed people, and there's the people that are accursed. When we saw in Matthew 7, we looked at verses 13 and 14, and it says there are those who enter through the narrow gate, and they're blessed, but there are also those who enter through the broad gate, and they're damned to hell forever. There are those who build their house on the rock that stands in judgment. And there are also those who build their house on the sand and it collapses. There's always been that division. In Matthew 10, it says those who are trying to hold on to their life, what's going to happen? You're going to lose it. And there are those who lose their life. And in doing so, what happens? They find their life. See, all the way through the gospel, it records basically the preaching of Christ, and he's always offering himself as this dividing line in human history. He even told his disciples in Matthew 10, 32, Whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you identify yourself with Christ, God will identify you as his own. But if you deny Christ, the gospel is very clear. If you deny Christ, then Christ will deny you before the Father. He went on to say in verses 34 and 36 of Matthew 10, Think not that I came to the world to, or to the earth to, to bring peace. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his mother and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be 
that of his own household. Some of you are sitting there this morning going, oh, that's the problem with my mother-in-law. I guess it's just a God thing. <laughs> well, it may, it may not be. <laughs> Matthew 21, Jesus basically confronting the hypocrisy of the chief priests and the elders. He spoke to them in a parable in Matthew 21, verse 28. He talks about a man who had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard. And he answered to his dad and he said, just basically disrespectfully said, I will not do it. I'm not going to do it. But afterwards, after he thought about it, he regretted it. He repented. And then he went and he did it. Then he came to the second son. And likewise, uh, he answered and said, oh, I'll go. I'll go, dad. Yeah, I'll do what you say. But then he didn't go. He stayed back. He just told his dad that he would go. And Jesus asked the question, which two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. That's what he said to Pharisees, right to their face and the chief priests. In other words, the first son was disobedient to his father, but he repented. He had a change of heart. The second son pretended to be submissive, pretended to behave and do what the father said but he didn't do it the first son basically represents those tax collectors those harlots the sinners that jesus hung out with and the second son is symbolized the hypocritical religion religion leaders of jesus day so once again we see this dividing line that jesus brings out in second corinthians chapter 2 the Apostle Paul continues with the same concept. The entire human race is divided into believers and unbelievers. And in verse 14, he says this, Now thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. In other words, there's a certain fragrance that a Christian has. And it's not due to your you know, shower gel stuff that you use. All right. He's talking about when you're around Christians, you just kind of pick up a certain kind of attitude, a certain atmosphere. We touch the word as, world, as it were, with the fragrance of God. He continues in verse 15, 16 of 2 Corinthians 2. He says, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved. And then he says this, and in them that perish to the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other a savor on life unto life. See, Paul's saying that Christians, as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're actually radiating that reality to be saved to the saved and to the perishing. And to the perishing, it's a message with the fragrance of death because they're not accepting the message of Christ. Therefore, they reject it. But to those who are Christians, they welcome that. Over and over again, we see that Christ clearly shows us that there's this dividing line. And so Jesus, throughout the Gospels, and here in Matthew, we've been looking at in chapters 8 and 9, he did all these miracles, nine miracles that were recorded. He did a lot more than that, but nine that God sovereignly put within his word. And basically... He put them in there so that we would know that Christ is who he said he is. As a matter of fact, it says in 2020 that many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did a lot more than what we even know about. Well, how did these people respond to that? That's what we want to look at this morning in verse 33 and 34. It doesn't take very long to see what their response was. Now, you remember, we've already seen some responses as we've gone through this, this gospel. We saw the first three miracles that Jesus recorded in chapter 8. They had a response. you remember that? And there was two men in, in Matthew and then one we, we uh, got from Luke. But these are men that approached Christ and said, hey, we want to follow you. But unfortunately, they love their personal comfort, you remember, and their personal riches and their personal relationships more than they love Christ. And they turned their backs on Christ once they found out what the cost was and they didn't follow him. They illustrated the superficial interest 
that never really comes to fruition. Well, I think I'll go check out this religious thing, Jesus. Everybody's talking about Jesus. I'll just come, come and kind of hang around the, the edges of this. But when the commitment's put before people, then they kind of go, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for this. We've all run into people like that. Their interest is just superficial. It's a momentary fascination. But there's no root there. And the second set of miracles, you remember, this is the the, the miracles that Jesus performed. And we saw Matthew's conversion come out of those. And we saw that he irritated the Pharisees. And he also confused the disciples of John the Baptist. They didn't know what was going on. And so there are people like Matthew who really believe in Christ, bring all their friends to him. And then there are people like the Pharisees who get irritated at Christ. And then there are those people like the followers of John the Baptist who just basically need more information because they're caught up in a religious system that they really can't get out of unless Christ breaks them free. So we come to this third set of responses here. And we look first at the multitude. Uh, Look at verse 33. It says, And the multitudes marveled. The marveling multitude. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing. The multitude concluded that the miracles they had seen were without question the greatest display of power ever seen by anybody in the history of Israel. Now, think about it. They've been around. They've read their Old Testament. They would have remembered Moses. They would have remembered Elijah and Elisha and all the miracles of their time. They would have remembered talk about the drowning of the Egyptian army, the writing of the law and the stone at Mount Sinai, the fall of Jericho, all those things. And they had heard about these wondrous things in the past, but never had there ever been anything like Christ's miracles. That's what he's pointing out to us. They were a display of divine power that was unequaled in Jewish history. Well, let's just pause here for a second and find out what does it mean to marvel? That word marvel, it's a very comprehensive word in the original language. It means basically to be amazed or astonished. And when you put a little prefix in front of it, ek, it means to marvel greatly, as in Mark twelve seventeen. And another form of the word literally means to marvel exceedingly. In other words, they were amazed beyond their amazement at what he did. It was breathtaking. It was incomprehensible. Their human minds couldn't absorb what he was doing. It was just totally awesome to them. And the word also carries with it the idea of terror or fear. You remember the disciples who were in the boat when Jesus calmed the the wind and the rain and the storm and everything was perfect. It says they were greatly fearful at that time. Well, why? The storm had stopped because they came to understand that they were in a boat with the very God of the universe. That's why they were fearful. They were in awe. In Luke 9.43, basically sums up why Jesus astounded, astounded all the multitudes. It says, And they were all astonished at the mighty power of God. But while they marveled, every one at all things which Jesus did. So the people were fascinated with what Jesus was doing, and they could only make one conclusion. And we see that conclusion. We're going to look a little bit at it next week. In Matthew 21, it says, And the multitudes that went before and followed, crying, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. The only conclusion they could make was that this is the Messiah. And it's that same multitude that followed Christ on Palm Sunday 
same multitude that laid down branches and just rallied around him like nothing, just an incredible crowd of people. It's that same multitude that turned against him when they got word that he was preaching a message that the religious establishment of the day didn't want to hear. A message of conviction. The same crowd that praised Jesus in Matthew 21 turned on him in Matthew 27. And they screamed for him to be crucified and they even exchanged him for a, a, a criminal, Barabbas. And so we have this fickle, marveling kind of mob with this superficial fascination, you might say, about Christ. There were those who followed him in John 6 who followed Christ, it says, for free food. <laughs> they thought, hey, man, maybe he'll make some more bread and stuff. Well, we won't have to go work. We can just follow this guy around and he'll feed us. They weren't really interested in what he had to say. They liked him at a distance. They were fascinated enough to follow him, but they were afraid to make any close contact. See, there's a lot of people today like that, even in the church. They have a fascination with Christ. They have a fascination with religion, even. But they don't get close enough to make contact. They're astounded and they're, they're amazed at the supernatural. They may be in awe of Christ, but they don't know Him as their Lord. They don't know Him as their Savior. And unfortunately, those people who make that decision, who find themselves in that situation, will spend eternity in hell in spite of all the favorable things that they may say about Jesus. There's a lot of people that said a lot of different things about Christ. Pontius Pilate said that he was a man without fault. But there's no biblical record that Pontius Pilate ever repented and turned to Christ. And if that be the case, Pontius Pilate is in hell today. Napoleon said that Christ was the emperor of love, yet he never made a commitment personal to Christ. Martineau said that he was the divine flower of humanity. And even Broadway says that he's the superstar. See, people always have those epithets to throw around about Christ. In his own day, many said in Matthew 8, 27, it said, what manner of man is this? In other words, where did this guy come from? We don't even have a category to put him in. And even today, people applaud Christ. They like him as long as they get a warm little fuzzy feeling about him without being confronted with his holiness. As long as he can be your friend, as we sang about this morning. As long as he's identified with love and sweetness and you can keep him at an arm's length, well, then he's a fascinating personality. See, you can talk about Jesus all you want if you don't confront people with the fact that he condemns men who commit immorality. That he condemns men who cheat or steal or lie. He condemns those who may be homosexual in their practice. He condemns those who are practicing practicing adulterers or fornicators. He condemns all who fail to live by God's law. That would be all of this, beloved. <laughs> See, and when the, the multitude find out that Jesus sends those kinds of people to an eternal hell unless they put their faith, their trust in him, then they're not so thrilled to talk about him anymore. Then all of a sudden their little cozy, warm-hearted Jesus becomes a judge. And that's tough to deal with. So as soon as the multitude got close enough to find out what Jesus was really about, their tune changed very quickly. They discovered that it wasn't safe to deal with a holy person, except in an arm's length. And that's exactly what they did. And that's what the Pharisees did. They were always honoring the prophets. But they were no better than their forefathers who killed them, the Bible says. The only prophet that was alive in Jesus' time was who? John the Baptist, right? And Herodias had him killed. And even Jesus Christ, when he became a threat 
to the religious society of his time, they killed him. The crowd kept their distance, but they had a strange fascination. It's kind of like when you're driving by an automobile accident on the freeway. Call them rubberneckers. Everybody's looking, fascinated. You wouldn't want to be in that accident. Boy, you're, you're, you're willing to stop there and look and see what's going on. So the marveling multitude. When verse 34, we see the religious people of Jesus' day and how they rejected him. It says, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons through the prince of the demons. They just watched this whole thing. They saw him cast out a demon. We don't know how he did it. It doesn't say. I'm sure that, you know, he didn't have a big fanfare and didn't stand back and say, okay, I got to work up the power here. Let's go. He didn't do that. Jesus never did any of that. It was probably with a word, be gone, boom, demons out of there. Now, as soon as he did that, he still had to heal the guy. And he did. They couldn't deny that he had done that. So what did they do? They said, okay, something's going on here. This guy is doing these supernatural things. We've all seen it. We can't deny it. Even the Pharisees didn't deny what he was doing. So they thought, you know what? We'll have to figure out a way to discredit him. He's claiming he's the Messiah. There's no way because he's casting out demons through the prince of the power of the, of the demons. They attributed his power to the prince of demons, to Satan himself. You can just see him saying, well, you know, you might think that's great. This guy doesn't have a demon anymore. But you know what? He did it by, by Satan's power, not by God's power. And they refused to believe that he was who he said he was, the Christ. And even Jesus showed later all the way it takes to Matthew chapter 12, the end of, or the middle of chapter 12, there are 25 and 27, to where he even answers their statement here. I think it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't even acknowledge their statement, really. Doesn't say he does. It says, but the Pharisee said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. What's the next verse say? Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching them. <laughs> See, sometimes it's better just to let your enemies, let your opponents just go unanswered. See, Jesus didn't kick into defense mode. Oh, yeah, you think I did that? Well, let me show you this, buddy. You know, get somebody else over here. I'll show you, you know. That's what we do. Even sometimes when we're witnessing to people, we do that. You know, people reject the message of the gospel and somehow we feel that it's upon us to convince them, to change them personally. Beloved, you can never change someone's heart. You can't do it. It's impossible. Only God can. And so sometimes when you're sharing Christ with somebody and they say, you know what? I don't need this. I don't want it. Stop it. The best thing you can do is honor that request. Okay, fine. And you go back and you pray. You begin to pray for that person. You know, this person doesn't even think they need Jesus Christ. They think that they're so self-contained that, that they don't need Christ in their life at all. And you go back to your prayer closet and you begin to pray for that person. And you begin to pray that God would open up a door, an opportunity, that God would work in that person's heart to bring them to their knees to reveal to them their need of Christ. And that when he does, you can be there with the message of the gospel. See, so many times we want to run out of the church and throw the message of the gospel filled with grace at the the feet of unbelievers. And you wonder why they go, whack, get out of here. Because they're not convicted. See, Jesus always practiced this. If you look anywhere in the, in the Gospels where his ministry is recorded, whenever he came across someone who was not believing in him and they were proud and they were self-righteous and they were, they were filled with themselves, beloved, he didn't give them grace. That's the last thing they need. What did he do? He gave them the law. He said, okay, you're proud? You're self-righteous? Well, let me tell you. Here's what God says. 
Pharisees. You think you don't go out and you don't commit physical adultery with your, your, your uh, neighbor's wife. That's fine. But the Bible says, even if you think it in your heart, you might as well have done it. Even if you haven't gone out and literally murdered your brother, maybe you have an ill feeling toward your brother. Still the same. See, Jesus confronted them with the law. He confronted them with their heart attitude, their pride, their arrogance. And that's what we need to do. So when you share the gospel with someone, don't just jump right into Jesus has a happy plan for your life. Start off with go through the Ten Commandments. Ask them, have you ever lied? Have you ever stole anything? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever used God's name in vain? There's not a person on the face of the earth that could probably say, no, 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 I've never done any of that. And that's just four of them. (laughs) What you're doing is you're confronting them with God's law. And when God's law confronts a sinful human being, what happens? Conviction. Conviction. Or rejection. If they reject it, if they just say, you know what, I don't want to hear it. Well, what are you going to do? Can't do anything. You can pray for them. Continue to reach out to them. But a lot of times I pray that, you know what, God? I mean, I've had conversations with people sometimes and, and I can, I, I'm just kind of biting my tongue because I want to just share all this stuff with them because they almost seem receptive. And God's shown me over the years, you know what? Just practice some restraint. Practice some restraint. Just hold back a little bit. Share them enough truth so they can, they can kind of get a taste of, 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 of where you're going with this. And then pray that God would use that as a seed in their heart. And that they would actually come back to you. And somehow bring this up in a conversation where you're not having to manipulate the conversation, but they are. This happened time and time again because God honors that. And all of a sudden, they're, they come back and we're talking about something. And they'll say, well, yeah, you know, it's kind of like what we were saying the other day. You know, we're, basically, we're all sinners. And I was thinking about this, and they start talking about it. And you just let them talk. And then you give them a little more truth. See? So many times, we want to close the deal. We think that, you know, we're this used car salesman on the lot, and we don't want the customer to get away. You know, we're just a representative of a very powerful God, beloved. God is perfectly capable of convicting that person, of drawing that person to himself. We don't need any kind of escapades. We don't need anything. God will do it. And he'll use that, use us in that process if we're willing to do it in a biblical manner. You know, somebody asked me one time, why don't you ever give invitations? Why don't you have people come down here and pray and and come to know the Lord that way? And I'm thinking, you know what? First of all, I don't necessarily see where Jesus practiced that. That's the most important thing. But secondly, I've seen that manipulate people. It's so easy to manipulate people. I mean, it's just so easy. You know, you play a little song and you start talking about things and pretty soon people are crying and you have them come forward. And and I've also been in churches where every week the same people come forward. They go and nothing's changed. They just keep on coming forward. See, I'd rather have God do that work in their heart, right where they sit. He's perfectly capable of doing that. And that person at the close of a, of a, of a message, if I say, hey, you know what? If you're, if, you, if you're without Christ this morning, it's as easy as crying out to him, just acknowledging that you're a sinner. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. Save me. I need you. That's the kind of prayer God will answer. Beloved, believe me, if God answers that kind of prayer, that person will be saved. If they're sincere in their heart, if that person is truly regenerate, if they're truly saved, what happens immediately? God does what? He sends the Holy Spirit to reside within them. What's that Holy Spirit going to do? It's going to start ministering to that person. It's going to start convicting them of any maybe known sin in their life. It's going to start changing them from the inside out. And eventually that person is going to, you know what? I made a commitment to Christ. When did you do that? I did it a couple weeks ago in the service, but, you know, I just didn't know what's great. See, somehow we think that unless we throw that person in a class and brainwash them with a bunch of information, that somehow they're going to get away. You know, the big one that got away. It doesn't work that way with God. 
God is sovereign, especially when it comes to salvation. So we're just the messengers in all this. And see, the Pharisees had a real problem with that. They, they couldn't follow Christ's reasoning. They saw everything they saw, but they rejected the message. And you had the marveling multitude and even the rejecting religionists. And you know what? Both of those people, unless they come to faith in Christ, are going to go to hell. Both are wrong responses. Both are rejecting the message of the gospel. Well, you say, well, what's the proper response? If both those people were wrong, what's the proper response? The proper response is this, is to believe and receive Christ. Not merely to be fascinated with him. That doesn't help anybody. That's inadequate for salvation. But to believe in Christ and to receive him. Receive him means to cry out to him and say, God, you know what? I want you to be part of my life. I messed things up enough. I'm tired. I'm weary. I want this burden lifted off me. Help me. You don't have to know all the theological words and you know, you don't have to go, thou art God and we are. You don't have to pray like that. Just, just pray whatever's on your heart. You don't have to speak King James version language to, to, to have a dialogue with God, okay? Just talk. Just tell him what's on your heart. And know that he's a holy God. And if you acknowledge you're sinful before a holy God, he will minister to you. He will draw you to himself. There are people who say, well, I want to be a disciple. God, I, Christ, I want to follow you. But you know what? I got all my creature comforts over here, my personal comforts and my personal riches and my personal relationships right now. And, you know, I just can't do it right now. But maybe one day I will. Well, you're not responding the right way. Those people were rejected by Christ, as we saw. Then there are those like Matthew who immediately come. And their life is transformed from a... He was a tax gatherer, this Matthew guy. I mean, he was the lowest of the, of the society. And yet God changed his heart because he was convicted of his sin. And when he changed his heart, he was saved. And when he was saved, what do we find Matthew doing? Going out and what? Basically, he had a big party, right? A big dinner. He invited all his friends who were what? Harlots and prostitutes and tax gatherers and the scum of society. Those are the only friends that would be his friends. But he was changed. And he had a compassion, just like Christ has compassion on us. And he brings these friends who are burdened with their sins to Christ. See, that's what we're called to do. We're not, we're not called to, to, you know, somehow convert somebody. We can't convert anybody. But we're to take the message to the lost. And if you have to, bring the lost to the message. That's okay too. However you want to do it. But there's a, a lost and dying world where each day people are dying and going to hell. And you never know when your number is going to be up. There's also those angry religionists who started out being irritated and they became blasphemers. Ultimately, they ended up murdering Christ. And the people who were confused, the disciples of John the Baptist, all these are responders to Christ's ministry. The marveling multitude of the people that basically they'd come to church on Easter and Christmas. <laughs> those are those kind of folks. Not that we don't want them to come. That's great. But you know what? That's not good enough. He wants a commitment. So I'd ask you this morning, how have you responded to what you've heard from the Bible? How have you responded? Have you responded by covering your ears and going, ah, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's enough for me to sit through this. Preach too long anyway. Are you just fascinated? You kind of go, well, there's something to this. I just can't figure it out. I don't know where you're at, but God does. He wants you to respond the right way. He wants you to bow your knee to Him. He wants you to come to Him as Lord and Savior. 
acknowledging your sin, and he'll save you. He'll make you a new person in Christ. I mean, you'll, you'll say, still be the person you are. I'm not saying you'll become some, you know, religious freak that carries around a 20-pound Bible and, you know, goes down in front of Bart and preaches. I mean, would be that more of us did that. But, you know, he's going he's gonna to use your personality and use your gifts and use your talents all for the kingdom of God instead of just for yourself. Because that's what you're doing. You're coming to him and you're yielding yourself to him. That's a scary thing for a lot of people. I remember my nephew and I, when we were driving across the country, my nephew Blake, he was just a, he's a commander of a Navy sub. This will make you feel comfortable. Uh, when we were driving out to California, we got bored. I was driving a 77 Buick Regal and no air conditioning. Windows were down. We're driving, I think it was in Texas somewhere. And the road's kind of pretty much straight on. And uh, I was driving and he was over there. And he goes, hey, you want to have some fun? I said, sure. What are you going to do? Well, he goes, you know, I think I had my, my I had it on cruise. I think I had my one foot up on the, out the window or something. I don't know. He goes, well, just kind of lean back and act like you're sleeping. I said, what? He goes, yeah, just pretend you're sleeping. And he goes, I'll put my foot over from where I'm at. I'll pretend I'm sleeping too on this thing. And I'll be steering the car with my foot. You know, and you have your feet out that one. And, you know, this would be interesting. So we're driving down the freeway. And we thought, oh, okay, you know, so we're acting like we're sleeping. You know, and he's got one eye open watching. People are driving by, burr, burr, you know, beeping. Oh, they really think we're sleeping. Then we'd speed up and, you know. And then we got a little more daring. We used to, as we, we drove, the driver would have to keep their eyes shut and be under total command of the person in the passenger seat. Okay, you got some cars coming up. They're about 100 yards away. You might want to slow down a little bit. Kind of ease over to the right-hand lane. And, and we just would try to keep our eyes shut. You know how hard that is when you're driving a car, trying to drive with your eyes shut? Just listening to instructions from somebody? I mean, you might say that. I'm, don't, don't try this. You know, we need a little disclaimer here. This is... All the teenagers are going, wow, this sounds kind of cool. No, don't do this, okay? This is not... This is professionals here. We're professionals. But I thought about that. And I thought, you know what? That's kind of like the Christian life. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're, 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 you're still kind of, you make decisions every day. You're still kind of in control of your life. And yet, you're really getting your guidance from Christ. Okay? And it's almost like you're driving a car blindfolded, just listening to Christ, just saying, okay, God, tell me what to do next. That's kind of what it is. And that's what he wants from us. That's the kind of response he wants. He wants us to trust him enough to give us, give him our lives. And you know what? Just ask around. He doesn't mess up, okay? God is not a God who's going to take that crashing into a car and say, oops, sorry, now let's try it again. No, it's not going to work that way. You can talk to person after person who has truly come to Christ and seen their life changed, and you, they can give you testimony after testimony of how the grace of God, the forgiveness of God has radically changed their life. He wants to do that for you. Second thing I want to look at this morning, not only the response to Jesus, but also the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. It says, Then he went out about all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That phrase there, when he went about... All right. It has the idea that there was a constant, non-stopping effort. Jesus just went. It's almost like 24-7. He was just going, ministering to people. And you know what? It would have been... It would have needed that kind of effort because when you look at where he went, it says all the cities and villages of Galilee. as Matthew 4.23 indicates. That area is in the northern part of the country. And it's a very fertile area. There's a lot of food that's grown there. Josephus, the church historian, tells us this. Historian Josephus. He says, At the time of Jesus, there was probably about 204 towns and villages. Okay, the difference between a city and a village was basically a wall. <laughs> Cities were fortified with a wall. Villages weren't. All right, that's what made the difference. Um, 
Galilee was about 70 miles long by 40 miles wide. He writes this, The cities are numerous and the multitudes of villages everywhere crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil, so that the smallest of them contains over 1,500 inhabitants. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of places to go. He estimated that there were 3 million people just in that area at that time in Galilee. And for Jesus to have gone out and to reach them all, he must have been moving rather rapidly through the villages, through the towns, and we're told what he did. He healed, he preached, and he taught. These are three ministries that are so important to Christ. Look at the first one there, teaching in their synagogues. The first ministry that Christ did was he taught in their synagogues. If you know anything about synagogues, that's obviously a worship house where Jewish people worship. Um, You have to have at least 10 Jews to make up a synagogue. And this was basically the center of Jewish community life. It still is today. There's a synagogue down here on uh, Temple Beth Jacob on Alameda. And the the, uh, rabbi and some of the guys come down here to the coffee shop. I think it's on Wednesday or Thursday after their time of prayer. And we talk a little bit and stuff. But it's interesting to hear them discuss things because everything revolves around the synagogue. It's just their life. It's the the focal point of religious belief. It's kind of the town hall, the local court. Among other things, it was back then. Now, synagogues didn't come along till later in, in Judaism because they, they didn't appear until after the Babylonian captivity because up to that time they had a what? They had a temple. Okay, well, when the temple was gone, the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were taken out of their country into Babylon for 70 years, they began to assemble together. Well, they didn't have a temple, but they had synagogues. And that's where this practice comes from. Um, Even today, synagogues exist in every city of the world where there's at least 10 Jewish people. It's incredible. In the time of our Lord, there were synagogues in these little towns and these little villages all throughout Israel there. And they were usually built up on what they call a little tell or a little hill. And uh, that was just the highest spot in the area would be where they placed the synagogue. And if there wasn't a very high spot, they would put it next to uh, the river. All right? And on the tops of the synagogues, you see this thing pointing straight up, kind of like a thing that we have on top of our church. And uh, it's just kind of an interesting <clears throat> uh, thing. And, and they, they did that, and they would gather together, and they would begin to worship. Well, what happens in a synagogue? You know, basically services were held on the second and fifth day of the week, as well as every festival day. All right? And their, their service is pretty simple. Anybody can go to a synagogue and kind of you just, you know, men, you cover your head. It's not a, not a big deal. And you can go in and, and observe what's going on, on on Saturdays, on the Sabbath. And, uh, you know, it's not unlike a lot of what we do in our church. They have a Thanksgiving. They have a blessing kind of come together. They might sing praises. Um, and... Uh, they, they, the people would speak of the blessings of the Lord in their lives, things like that, what he had done. And the congregation would, would respond with an amen. And then they would have a re- reader who was kind of a prescribed reader. They'd stand up and they'd read from the law of Moses, usually in Hebrew, and uh, the original language of its writing. And then they would be translated back then into Aramaic, okay, in Jesus' time. And then next would come a reading from the passage of the prophets, which also would be translated, and then there'd be a sermon or what you'd call an exhortation. And a lot of these synagogues, basically, um, the, the Latin word, the, or the Yiddish word, basically, for synagogue is school, which we get the word school from, okay? And that's really what it was. They viewed it as a place to educate their people, not only in the court of law, but in theological ways, in theological school, but they also used it as a place to exposit the Scripture, to go through and to make plain the meaning of the Scripture. In, in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, the Apostle Paul found his way to this little town of Berea, and it says that he went into the synagogue of the Jews. And when he did that, it says that he preached to them, and they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. In other words, you don't just take it for what this guy up here behind this pulpit saying. All right? But you go to your word and you figure out what it's saying, all right, to, to affirm what the person who's preaching is saying. 
And if the two don't jive, we got a problem. And it's going to be with the person behind this pulpit, okay? Not with the Word of God. Um, and so the, the sermon would be presented, and uh, it could be presented by a leading member of the congregation or really by, by one of the, the rabbi or whoever. And they call that the freedom of the synagogue. It's kind of a unique place. You can kind of go and just share whatever. And uh, sometimes they'd have a visiting dignitary come and share whatever it might be. But it's interesting to me when you look at the pattern of teaching in these synagogues, it's the same thing that happens today. They read it, they read the, the text, they explain it, and then they apply it. That's what they do. That follows basically what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah 8.8, it says, They read the book of the law, gave it sense, and then caused them to understand the reading. People sometimes ask why I teach through the Bible. Why do you go through books of the Bible? Why don't you just teach something topical? Why don't you teach, you know, how to have a happy family, series of five messages, and then how to have a full wallet, series of ten messages, whatever. You can, tell, you can see why I don't do that because I'm not creative enough to, enough to come up with these catchy little phrases, you know, for the titles of these messages. So I just figure if I just teach through the Bible, the Bible will communicate itself to you and hopefully God will do a work. That's why I do that. And so they, they would read the passage, they would teach the passage, and then they would expect the people to respond to the passage. And so he had a teaching ministry. Jesus had a teaching ministry. Jesus taught and he exposited the word in the local synagogue. We see that time and time again. Secondly, second element of his ministry we see here is that he preached the gospel. And you say, well, isn't that kind of like teaching? No, it's something different. Teaching and preaching are two different things. The Greek word caruso here means to herald or to make a public announcement, to proclaim something. See, Jesus didn't limit himself to teaching expository messages in the synagogues. He was also out on the street corners. He was also on the hillsides. He was by the sea and the houses and on the roadways in different areas, preaching the kingdom of the gospel or the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Preaching is, you might say, more evangelistic than teaching. See, teaching is giving you information to build up your heart, to build up your soul, okay? Whereas, whereas preaching is more giving out the good news that Jesus does save, that there is a gospel, that there is forgiveness of sin in Christ. Now, it'd be kind of boring if every Sunday if I got up and all I did was preach the gospel to you. You know, Jesus died for your sins, he rose on the third day. You need to believe in him. You need to repent of your sins. And every week, that's all I did was just preach the gospel. You say, well, I thought the power was in the gospel. It is. But see, you also have to teach the word of God so there's a foundation for the gospel to take root in. You have to do both. But within the confines of the church... Okay, we lean more toward the teaching aspect of the gospel because we believe fundamentally that the church is for those who have trusted in Christ. All right, we believe that the church is for those who make up the body of Christ. Well, who's in the body of Christ? Those who put their faith in Christ. So if you're already saved, if you already understand the gospel, if you've already applied the gospel to you, do you need to hear that message again and again and again and again and again? Probably not. It's important what I'm saying here. You need to be taught. You need to be affirmed in your faith. You need to be built up. You need to be edified. How do we do that? By teaching the word of God. And then we slide the gospel and the good news of the gospel anywhere we can. And that's what Christ did. His message was always the same. Good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. The good news is that the kingdom, which the Jewish people had long awaited for, had arrived. That's what's good, what, what, what the good news was that Christ was bringing. And so he wanted everybody to know that. So he preached the gospel. And he did it with a heart of compassion. Now, it's important to understand that that's not the only thing he did. He just didn't teach and he just didn't preach. But this is the incredible thing. And this is what we've been looking at. He also healed every sickness and every disease. Uh, see, the use of miracles, understand, was third. 
All right, his primary role was to teach the word of God, to preach the gospel, and then he healed people. He wasn't just in it for the healing, beloved. Jesus wasn't just a healer, okay? He used those miracles, sovereignly and divinely approved of by God himself, to really affirm the validity of his other ministries, his teaching and his preaching. When the Pharisees would say, oh, here's this guy get off telling us that, you know, uh, you know, we have a hard, a hard attitude and we're prideful and we're whitewashed tombs or whatever. Well, they, he, he already laid down a foundation with his, with his uh, miracles. And they knew something was up with this guy. They just didn't understand what it was. And so he used his healing ministry to really affirm his other ministries. B.B. Warfield said this. He said, When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. See, why did Jesus do these miracles? To verify his message. And I think he also did it to demonstrate his love and his tenderness and the compassion that he had in his heart. Jesus wanted to know, wanted people to know God. And he wanted them to understand that God was not like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And so God sent Jesus in a body to represent himself, to be himself here. And he he reached out to people and he was compassionate. He was sympathetic. He was tender. He was loving. He was giving them the correct vision of what God is like, the correct experience. It wasn't like the Pharisee who would condemn everybody and just be caught up in the religion. So Matthew gives us this this clear picture of not only those who respond to Christ, but of his ministries. And that's what he calls us to do. He calls us to be part of that ministry, whether it's teaching, maybe it's teaching children, downstairs in Sunday school. Maybe it's teaching young children in the nursery. Maybe it's teaching a Bible study or a small group. We're all called to preach the gospel. We're all called to leave this place with the gospel of hope and forgiveness and go out those doors and share it with whoever is willing to hear. And if they're not willing to hear, we pray and we ask God to do a work in their heart that would make them willing to hear. And so all these people have responded to Christ. And I ask you this morning, what does your response look like? Where are you at? Are you just on the the perimeter? Are you just fascinated with Christ? Maybe you've been raised in a religion that taught you a bunch of stuff and you're holding on to that. Maybe you've been raised with no religion at all and you're just kind of unsure I don't know where you're at this morning, but God does. God knows exactly where you're at. He knows the greatest need that you have right now is not how much is in your, your bank account, not where your rent's going to come from, not where your next meal's going to come from, none of that. Your greatest need right now is where will you be after you die? Remember, Christ divided humanity. There's only two places you can go. Because a lot of people say, well, don't you want to trust Jesus and live forever? You know what? Those people that don't trust Jesus, they're going to live forever too. It's just a different place. We're all eternal beings. We're all going to live forever. The question is, are you going to live in heaven in, for eternity with God because you've come to Christ, you've trusted Christ? Or are you going to be judged and sent to hell because you did not respond to the gospel? You didn't, did not respond to Christ with a repentant heart. He thought, you know what? I'm just going to trust in myself. Do it myself. Beloved, it won't work. It won't work. There's only a way out of the, one way out of the mess that we find ourselves when it comes to sin, and that's trusting in Christ for the salvation that he offers. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that you would make clear to each one in this place, Lord, what needs to be done in order to be saved. Father, I don't know what kind of work you're doing in people's hearts. Lord, I know that we saw the response of the people here before us in the scriptures. 
You had people that were totally astonished. They were marveled. They looked at what Christ had done and they were just blown away. That didn't save them. Then you also had people who openly rejected him and said that he did his work by the power of Satan, even though they knew better. Kind of a ridiculous argument when you think about it. But they had to come up with something. We're all going to have to give an answer one day to Christ. And either it's now bow your knee before the Savior and you come to Him in grace or you will one day bow your knee count this beloved before Him as your judge. And there's no second chance. That's something that God has to work in your heart. And Lord, if he's, con- if he's convicted you this morning of your sin, Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself, that you would help them to cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, change me. I'm tired of being this way. I'm tired of just being on the sidelines. I want to be part of your family. I want to experience your grace, your forgiveness. God, you can do that work. And for us believers, I pray that we would be bold in our witness that we wouldn't cheapen the gospel, that we wouldn't dumb it down to somebody raising a hand or walking down an aisle. But Lord, that we would understand that you extend a compassionate call to salvation to all who sin and fall short of your glory, and that's everybody. And Father, we just pray that you would do that work in us. Give us that burden for the lost, that we could leave here with a message of hope and forgiveness to a lost and dying world. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for our time this morning. We ask you to bless the remainder of our day and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.